Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with Summit K-12. We're so excited to have you uh, join us for this episode as we talk about a new book coming out by our good friend of the show, Michael Horn, who is uh, not only an education thought leader, but also the author of From Reopen to Reinvent. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing well and better to be with you. <laughs> Excellent. And we'll start off the way we start all of our shows. In case someone hasn't seen one of the past episodes you've joined, give our audience uh, a sense of who are you and what do you love about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I got into this world of education, working with Clay Christensen, the father of disruptive innovation theory. Uh, we co-founded a nonprofit think tank, the Christensen Institute, and then written a number of books on the future of education, joined the Entangled Group in 2015. We were both supporting institutions and in transformation, but also spinning up new for-profits and non-profits. Uh, and then we got acquired by Guild. I've been a senior strategist uh, there since uh, Guild works on the other side uh, of some of what we're going to talk today, really with adult workers. We support companies in being able to upskill and, and give their frontline employees the career paths that they need uh, to succeed through education. So I've been doing a bunch of that. And then I sort of fill time with podcasting and other such fun. To Tell answer us. your question though, yeah, what, why, what gets me excited? I mean, look, my mission is to help everyone be able to live in a world in which they're able to build their passions and fulfill their human potential. I've never had a day where I've worked, right? Like that's just such a meaningful set of things to work on for people. And I'm inspired daily to help from what little I can offer uh, to help move us forward in that goal. I love it. And then talking before the show, uh, your new book lines up almost perfectly with the, the vision and the mission of our uh, show. So let's jump right into the, the new book. What uh, inspired you to write this book and give us a little bit of uh, an overview? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I thought I was done writing books on K-12 education. I'm, I'm, I was wrong. The pandemic hit. Uh, and Diane Tavner, who leads Summit Public Schools, a network of 11 middle and high schools, she and I started a podcast called Class Disrupted. And we started having a set of conversations on air about like, how would you take this moment and not just run back to normal, but actually transform and amidst all the pain, amidst all the challenges, try to see it as an opportunity to, to reinvent education. And so we have dissected a lot of elements of our current education system and a lot of the traditional arguments in our education system and tried to say there's a third way through this that allows people to hold on to what's sacred to them, but creates a much better future for all children. And out of that, it, it just, to me, felt like a book. And so I put it together and a lot of it was like, hey, yes, educators are sinking under a lot right now. But I also know when I talk to them, they don't want to go back to normal either. They don't want to go back to an education system that was, quite frankly, not working for the vast majority of kids. And I'd argue not working optimally for anyone before the pandemic. So how can I give them a vision, a set of tools uh, to start to move forward, make progress to better serve all learners. And, and that was really how the book idea came out of. And then I uh, really rapidly wrote it because it was a lot of the stuff I'd been saying and writing over the preceding couple of years. And not to give away the whole book because we want people to purchase the book. I believe it's coming out uh, this summer. But this is a conversation we've been talking about. You've been talking about a lot of people have been talking about 
what can you give us that is going to be concrete in this book that is going to be uh, the best reason for educators, administrators, purchase? What are they going to get out of it? Yeah, absolutely. So look, the book comes out in July and basically it starts with a conversation of how do you even shift from something that has been so threatening, so debilitating to an opportunity framing? Like that sounds insensitive, right? On the surface for so many educators and students right now living day-to-day on the front lines, how do you even do that? And so it gives a methodology for doing it that makes it contained, allows them to take into account their school board politics, their leadership politics, whatever it might be, and dedicate some resources to this and frankly, take advantage of some of the federal government funding that's coming down right now. And then we shift into what should you do with this? And we say, you know, sunset this notion of learning loss. Think about this moment as being one about fueling kids' mastery, allowing them to be successful on a daily basis. What would that look like? And so we talk a lot about mastery-based or competency-based learning and how you do that and some don'ts around that as well. And then I get into, okay, how would we think about a more sustainable profession for teachers? And then we think about, okay, parents are a major constituency in this. They clearly have the power to block change. How would you get them on board? What are they after? What's progress look like for parents? And then from there, we talk about, yes, the technology and the culture of the school is so critical. And then a process for de-risking this change. And how do you get people to cooperate when maybe they disagree on what you're trying to do? So that's literally chapter by chapter, what I'm walking through in the book and trying to give people both some tools that they can use and apply in their situation. But frankly, my very strong opinions of how we ought to reinvent in some cases and, and a little more prescriptive, I think, than I've been in the past about that. I love it. And we probably don't have time to dive into each one of those chapter head headings that you just gave me, but I want to spend a little time in the competency-based learning, the mastery learning for any educators, administrators out there that have heard the term and are maybe uh, shy to admit that they don't fully grasp that concept. Give us a little bit of a foundation there and and your spin on how we can actually make that a realization in our uh, K-12 schools. So I love that you picked on that one, JW, because that is literally, I think, the biggest meat of the book. It is certainly the main theme of the biggest chapter in the book, but it also reappears in about four or five chapters and basically says, if we don't make this shift to mastery-based learning, we will remain stuck in what is currently a zero-sum education system, where for every winner, there is a loser. And that is actually one of the obstacles in my mind to change, is that you know, certain families feel like if you make that shift, you know, of whatever your reform is, like, is my kid going to lose out before, you know, and before they were going to win. And the argument underpinning the book is that a shift to a mastery-based learning system or a competency-based learning turns it from a zero sum to a positive sum where we can all benefit. Why is that? Well, because fundamentally right now, our education system is built on sorting students, labeling them through grades and things of that nature. And the basic argument is that a mastery-based system, students don't fully leave a core concept, core application of skills and knowledge until they have demonstrated mastery. And so what that means is everyone's incentives in the system becomes around helping every single child succeed. Some will need more time on certain foundational concepts. Some will be able to whisk through and go deeper in something but fundamentally orienting around mastery of the core competencies that we want students to know and and do when they leave our K-12 education system. 
everything orients around that. The time becomes variable, learning becomes the guarantee. Now, one last piece about this, because I think there's a lot of conversation right now in the ethos around mastery-based or competency-based learning. A lot of districts, they change their grading system, right? Because they say, well, the A through F grading system has tons of flaws, which I document in the book, and it labels students, we need to move to standards-based grading or something like that, like a one to four system. And one of the arguments I make in my book is, yeah, your grading system is going to change as a result of moving to mastery-based learning, but just changing grading alone is not actually moving to mastery-based learning, right? Like that's just like what we call something. Fundamentally, the commitment has to be around making sure every child masters and the reports or the grades or whatever are just to give a reflection, to give information on like, what has Michael mastered so far? What is he working on? What hasn't he gotten to do yet? And that's fundamentally what that becomes about. And by the way, it can also show like, Michael really loves geeking out on this topic and he's gone super deep on a bunch of projects there, which better represents who I am becoming as an individual. Well, and it's hard to talk about K-12 without talking about higher ed and, and workforce yeah. readiness. And I promise we're going to stick more, mostly to K-12 here, but this is the shift in the workplace too, right? You can't just get trained on uh, doing a part of your job and not fully master it and then just move on to the next piece of your job, right? This is something that is going to be a big part of upskilling, reskilling, and everyone really having to become lifelong learners versus a nice to have, you know, idealistic, oh, we should create a few lifelong learners. Talk about, you know, how that plays into this book as far as we need to be training our students in K-12 for higher ed and for careers and for the, the professional workplace. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked the question because a major, you know, that's another major argument in the book, which is it's not just knowledge that students need to master, but also these skills and even more what I call habits of success, but some people call life skills or social emotional learning, right? Which is all about metacognition and agency and executive function and like how I, as, a, as an individual, learn to learn and learn to make progress and map out the set of things that I need to do to be successful, right? And the basic argument is that just as you said, like the half-life of knowledge and skills is rapidly shrinking. Some would say like it's 40 years right now before what you knew on the workforce is out of date. And as a result of that, continually upskilling is critical. But let's be honest, like employers aren't going to hold your hand and be like, okay, now, Michael, it's time for you to learn this particular module. And next week, you know, they don't know my own journey. Uh, and so we as individuals to succeed, like we're going to have to learn how to take ownership, have very clear understandings of who we are and a clear understanding of where we're going and how we get there through learning on a constant basis. And so as a result, you know, part of this shift is learning these habits of success to be this lifelong learner, which I would say like, that's going to be table stakes for being a successful person in, in, in frankly right now, but certainly in the future of our society. And I, I would say the other piece that we talk about and that I talk about in the book is how I don't actually think you can teach these habits of success in a traditional time bound model. And the, the reason is like, you know, perseverance is a key habit of success, Right. Well, or growth mindset is another one. So just take those two for a moment. In the current education system, we're working on double-digit addition. I'm in elementary school. At the end of the three-week unit, it's time to move on to subtraction. And I haven't fully mastered it. Well, guess what? 
I move on regardless of what effort or work I've put in because the whole class moves on together. And so the teacher can sit there till she's blue in the face telling me growth mindset, like you can all grow. Intelligence is a factor of, you know, putting it in. It's not a natural state of being yada, yada, yada. But like at the end of the day, the education system totally undermines that as it currently stands. And you have young kids like I have, they are much more finely tuned to watch what you do rather than what you say. (laughs) And if the system just moves them on and undermines the message of what you're talking about, they're going to catch on and they're going to play the game that, you know, we played as, as well when we were in high school and middle school and so forth, which was, it was all about getting the A or B or whatever. So you were good enough. And then you keep moving. It wasn't about the learning itself. Yeah. And I often say, and I probably picked it up from you and other guests I've had on my show that the core of what we should be teaching in K-12 is how to learn, giving them the tools and the resources and the agency, but then also the, the key role, I think, for a lot of the educators is building relationships and inspiring those students to want to learn and to want to learn on their own to, to be able to be successful down the road. And that's my transition into the, the teacher piece. How do you address that in your book? You, you talked about uh, teacher support. Give us some insights into what you see as the future of teaching. Yeah. So the fundamental argument is that teachers have an impossible task today. We're asking them to be superheroes. We're asking them to sit in there and be the content expert, the lesson planner, to know what everyone needs, to give them the social emotional support, to give a bunch of people way more than that, by the way, for which the teacher was not trained, you know, around trauma and things of that nature that are incredibly important sets of support. We're asking them to do projects so that, you know, we're applying these in real world settings. We're asking them to know what the future of work or even the current state of the workforce is when like they're in a classroom, right? We're putting all these jobs and I've many, I I list out a bunch of them uh, in the book on one individual with a group of students. And the question that I ask is how do we create a set of educator roles where they're differentiated responsibilities, right? And some of that might be super prescribed, like you know, you and I are co-teaching a larger class of students together. And you're like, Hey, Michael, I love geeking out on data and assessments and figuring out like what each child needs next. And I'm like, great, because I hate data and like trying to figure this out against assessments, but I love facilitating small group conversations and doing tutoring. Like that, that's why I got into this work. Right. And guess what? We can play off each other and do that. And by the way, maybe it's not that rigid, right? Like maybe it's more like we're covering for each other in different ways, but it creates way more room to inspire, to create role models, to frankly bring social capital from outside of the classroom in through technology so that you know, I can develop a, a, a connection, a mentor with someone out in the quote unquote real world who can also inspire me. We're not asking every single teacher to do all of these things, but we're creating more bandwidth for them to do a lot more. The second piece of it, I think, is when you also use technology, frankly, to do the content delivery. And, and I still think knowledge and content knowledge is incredibly important partially as a tool, frankly, to develop these skills and habits of success. It's sort of like that's the educator sandbox, right, in which to develop these. You know, now technology, though, can dynamically deliver content for me in very bite-sized active learning ways, right, that meet my needs. The teacher doesn't need to spend every single night lesson planning and figuring out how to get that content that sucks up a lot of energy, they can spend far more time on the value add around 
feedback, individualized attention, inspiration, projects, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's another big argument is like how we shift. And frankly, we have so many years of research on what motivates people. Uh, education, the way it is currently constructed, basically ignores all of that research around what motivates people to do better job. And it systematically beats teachers down in ways that are deeply unfair and unsustainable, which I think we're seeing right now. And I think we have an opportunity to redesign it to make it better for all. And I'll ask a question that I'm personally curious about because I've had some interesting conversations with, with others around this, but the idea of the, the educators becoming more the facilitators of learning or the guides. And yep. that seems to be something that people are excited about in, in one side of things, but also that's a term maybe from 10 years ago that uh, looked very different back then and maybe had more of a negative connotation that it was diminishing the role. Give us your take on, on is that an appropriate term or is there a better term? And is that the trend that you kind of see going in, in, you know, a perfect world? Yeah. So I try to, I, I actually don't use this sort of guide on the side uh, instead of the sage on the stage framing in this particular book, although I don't mind uh, that particular framing. But I guess the way I think about it is that teachers are human beings who have intuition and expertise that cannot be done by a computer or technology. And so the goal of our schools and our schooling communities should be to allow teachers to practice and spend their time at their top of the craft, at the things that only human beings can uniquely do well. And the rule-based stuff and stuff that can be codified, like something else should do that, or we should create ways that like, you know, maybe apprentice teachers coming up through the system can hone their skills on and then get to that point where they can be that master educator. I really want a teacher when they're working with me one-on-one. -on -one. First of all, I want those interactions with that teacher to be much more human and much more high quality, much more tailored to me as an individual to inspire, to say, hey, Michael, I see your misconception around this particular knowledge, right? Diagnosing, being able to give feedback in ways that like technology just, it, it can't do. And so that that's, I guess, how I, that's the short answer to how I, I think about it is like, we should be in the business of allowing teachers to practice at the top of their craft. I love it. And I believe that the technology should be there to enhance the teaching experience and enhance the learning experience that, that hopefully through the pandemic, uh, educators have realized that technology is not coming for their jobs, that it is, you know, there to enable them to get back to why they got into teaching and to fall back in love with, you know, that, that system. 100%. And you know, look, some teachers love the performance, right? And there's nothing wrong with having moments of that, or frankly, being able to inspire a group of five instead of maybe a group of 30, right? Staring at you at once. But I also think, you know, to your point about technology and sort of some of the fears around that or whatnot, part of the argument I make in the book is we've always had technology in classrooms. That technology has just in many just been sort of textbooks and things of that nature, and, and the question is like, how do we use the technology alongside the teacher to allow them to do more, right? And to that point, in some ways, I think it's not really the technology that like unleashes them. It's actually having the basic curriculum and set of experiences all mapped out before and then freeing the teacher from having to plan out for a whole class and deliver all of those experiences because if you look at a Montessori classroom, which I know you're, you know, have some uh, knowledge about and passion around as I, as, as do I, like what you see in those rooms is there's tons of technology. Most of it is not digital, right? It's these manipulatives and so forth. 
But what it allows is that for the child to have a constrained set of productive choices, not unconstrained with like unlimited, that would be totally unfair to a four-year-old, but allows them to make good choices to learn something. And it's preset in effect, right? Like the basic curriculum is there, but then like the teacher comes in and sees me doing something with it. And it's like, oh, gee, like, you know, to my seven-year-old daughter, you seem really interested in atoms based on what you were just reading over and over again. Let's go to the library and together find a couple books, right, on that. And then now all of a sudden my child is like super jazzed about how she's going to learn about the building blocks of matter and what can she do with that, right? There's so much more room for that when you're using the technology and curriculum created by someone else to free up the teacher's time to create a lot more of those magic light bulb moments. And I think that speaks to uh, another big, you know, topic of the day is not just bringing equality to students, having a device for every student, but really bringing equity, having the, the content and curriculum meet them where they're at or reflect their uh, backgrounds. And, and that seems like another really powerful use of technology is that there can be much more choose your own adventure within the same stem of whatever content piece you're looking at, that everyone can get the same basics, but can also then, you know, kind of, if they want to go deeper, go deeper, or if they want to explore something in a different way than another student, whereas that one teacher with 30 kids just wouldn't have the, the time of the day to be able to provide all those potential experiences. A hundred percent. And, you know, it, 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 it's interesting just reflecting on when you, when you say that, right? Like differentiation we know in traditional classrooms doesn't really work. Like it, it teachers hate it. They struggle. The kids don't get what they need. It, the studies on it have been pretty lousy. And I think no wonder because you're asking this teacher to like, oh, lesson planning and delivery of curriculum was hard before. Now you get to do it for 30 kids, not just, you know, one class. Like, yeah, good luck. Right. But to your point, we have a set, we have a STEM as you, I, I like that language. Right. And we have branches off of that but it's not infinite branches, particularly when students are novice learners. As they get older into high school, I'm a big fan of giving a lot more autonomy and a lot more room for projects and a lot more exploration of how certain things we've been learning, you know, we can apply them and so forth. But it's it should be relative to the novice or expertise stage of a given learner, how much cognitive load we're asking them to bear. And yeah, exactly. Then we can personalize for, you know, Michael, the, the standard is about like comparing two different periods in history and how it impacted democratic governments, you know, going through war, making that up, but like, right. Okay. I, I want to read about the civil war and world war two. You want to read about like Vietnam and something else and like rooted in your experience. Fine. Like, and then we can both write essays about it. Right. And then we could talk about it. And so I think you know, and that imagines, by the way, we've given a small amount of background knowledge so we can even make that informed choice. So I think some of people's worries that like, I'll skate by with no knowledge in this world are greatly overblown. <laughs> and then some people's sort of imaginations that like the five-year-old kid can do any project that they want is perhaps a little bit forgetting, you know, some of the supports that a five-year-old needs. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think for me, it does come a little bit back to technology, finding its place through this pandemic as a part of the core and not being a supplement, not being a computer lab, not being a, just a yeah. uh, supplement after school to do a little extra practice in a certain area, but to really incorporate it into everything we're doing. 
with the knowledge too, that some of the best online learning happens offline, right? That using the technology just to enhance it, that project on the wars, there could be some things outside of technology that you're going to be doing research at the library. You're going to be, you know, having discussions with people uh, that maybe are veterans and things like that. But then maybe it comes back to then journaling online and kind of having your, your uh, project, you know, base there. So, so that's my hope is that we are leveraging technology to its, to its strengths and not overestimating that this is the silver bullet that, oh, well, now we're, we're closer to one-to-one and everyone will have all of these millions of EdTech tools and it'll just work itself out. We know that's, that's obviously not going to be the case. I 100% agree. And I, I try to state it extremely clearly. There's only one chapter explicitly on technology on purpose. And I, I, I use that language. It is not a silver bullet. It will never be. The model in which it's used is way more important than the tools themselves. And they also have a critical role. Like if you're a high school student without an internet access device these days, you as a school are not preparing them for the real world. And so I will say like, I I underwent an evolution in writing this book. I've been against one-to-one programs for their own sake and said like, let the model guide. I, for high school kids now, like everyone needs a device. I I, I just, I think in, in today's modern world, I just don't see how we're preparing people in a good faith effort, if we don't start with that as at least the default. And look for, again, the kindergartner. No, I don't think one-to-one is important yet. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of ways to accomplish it. I do think you should have devices that are around because there's some really good programs that can do a lot of those things and stretch imagination and bring children to places they never otherwise uh, would go or have exposure to were it not for the technology in really visceral, cool ways. I mean, I've just, during the pandemic, I've been really impressed with my kids playing through different educational software programs and just the content knowledge and awareness that they grow out of it uh, and what that's enabled them to do. And then, you know, they're on scratch and stuff like that, right? Coding and things of that nature. And it's, it is very cool. And it's very different from just like, okay, we're going to replicate the classroom on zoom now, which in my mind is the exact wrong use uh, of the technology. 100%. And and we never plug any products on this show. As my audience knows, we have no sponsors. We're beholden to no one. But personal experience to Osimo for uh, my kids has been really, uh, you know, engaging and door opening as well. I would uh, transition this now a little bit more as you brought up for both parents. Many of the listeners are parents. Is this book also for parents? Maybe talk about in general, who is this book for? And if it is for parents, what role uh, do we see parents settling into post pandemic as well? Yeah, so the the book is really for anyone who has an influence over their uh, schooling community, right? And so I, I, I imagine that educators are sort of your first line audience in that, but I think parents will be very interested in it because I think it will raise their awareness of things that are out there that perhaps they did not understand. And I try as best as I can to avoid the jargon past the, my mom test on editing, I think. Um, so, uh, you know, that she, you know, she went through it and she said, these sentences are confusing and this doesn't make sense. And I, I scrapped them and went back to the drawing board. And because I think that parents have a really important role in a way that has been elevated. And I talk about this a lot in the book, by the way, in a way that has been elevated to heights that we have not seen in this country in at least a hundred years. And what I mean by that is that every family now realizes that they have way more choices than they had appreciated beforehand. They are acting in many cases as consumers of education, making conscious choices each and every year, frankly, about 
Where does their child go? What educational experiences do they have? And we talk a lot about how the pandemic has revealed very clearly that not only did kids have learning differences, but families had vastly different learning needs. And so a major argument in the book actually is that I think the education districts and school systems are going to have to set up a portfolio of options that meet different family needs and desires for progress in different ways in order to allow us to have any forward momentum. And at, at the very end, I talk about why that could be scary to some people hearing, you know, does that mean segregation? Does that mean, you know, like we're not going to have people who are maybe disagree in politics uh, talking with each other and so forth. And so I address that because I think it's a very serious uh, question and it gives me some pause as well. And I try to give my philosophical take, but also my take grounded in the facts of today, which is that, you know, while racial segregation to some degree has been declining, political segregation has never been higher. And so I, I, I sometimes think that we may be overstating the risks of not creating personal environments that allow families and students to make progress. And I talk about how to leverage micro schools and a lot of these things in a district structure so that there's equitable access to their benefits as opposed to families like mine being able to make that choice on their own will and opt out completely of the education system. All right, we're wrapping up the end of our time and I wanna kind of just keep going on that theme to finish. Both of us agree that uh, this is one of the most exciting and critical times in the history of education that we do have this opportunity to make large and small systemic changes. And we have to uh, because 2019 pre-pandemic as you said earlier, it wasn't that great for you know certain student populations, and and some could argue for most students in general uh, that we needed a better way. We needed a way to accelerate learning and not hold kids back. But at the same time, we know there's no one size fits all for every community, for every school, and I think that's a big uh, challenge that a lot of communities and districts are facing right now. Is uh, there's so much choice, so much opportunity, so much at stake. How do we make the right, you know, next choice for our specific uh, community and campus? And it sounds like this book will will help provide some frameworks, if you will, and not necessarily just the uh, explicit roadmap. As a takeaway for everyone listening, uh, is that what they're getting with this book? Is it going to give them those tools to help them make their own best decisions? 1000%. Uh, you've nailed it, which is to say, I advance you know, some of the things that I think will help, but I also say not everyone's going to be ready for them. Not everyone's going to want them. You know, uh, We talk a lot around the use of time and, and better meeting parents' schedules in the book. And I talk about you know, year-round schooling or extended days and, and, and things of that nature. And I say that might not fit every parent's need, desire. <laughs> they might get really angry if you try to change it. So how do you create the right structure for the parents that actually need that sort of support and a different structure for parents that need a very different set of supports and not, and to your point, not assume a one size fits all solution, because I think the pandemic, I I think that was already a flawed notion, but I think the pandemic has blown that to shreds and just to me, actually, that's one of the reasons why we have a lot of fights right now in education is like, we continue to treat it as a one size fits all prescription and and that just, it's not going to work. But secondly, to say like, Hey, this group of families over here, they're ready for mastery based learning. They're ready to go on the journey with you. Well, just go on the journey with them. Don't worry about everyone for day one, take some baby steps, make progress, allow them to make progress. And if you do that successfully, 
you'll build a lot more goodwill and get a lot more people excited to come on the train with you. And feel free to build a continuum, albeit not all things to all people, but here's, you know, the phases we're in or the stages that we're in that we can offer these three options. And those can evolve over time and, and feel like you can please more than just this group or that group, right? That you can have some. Yeah, there's no static, there. right? Innovation is a dynamic process. It's not a one-time event. And so that's really the lens of the book is to say, how do you think about this as a process as opposed to okay, we've put it in place and now it's fixed and like, we're never going to have another option again. Like that's the zero sum mentality I think we're trying to get away from ultimately. Yeah. And just like in the classroom, there is no set it and forget it. There is no uh, easy, easy answer, but you know, I appreciate you taking on this, this topic in the book and joining us today. Uh, Hopefully my audience is excited for that uh, book to come out in July and has learned a lot today and has really made them think. So Michael Horn, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, I appreciate being with you and thank you for the good questions. And to my audience, as usual, thank you so much for uh, joining another episode here of Voices of E-Learning. Be sure to check out past episodes on the website or uh, anywhere that you consume your podcasts. And uh, remember to always, always keep learning. 